Okay, we're going to try this because there's only a few more hours left till daylight and there are plenty of other things I've got to do before I can put my head down. Uh, so, welcome back to the Dynasty Crossroads. My name's Peter Howard. Experimenting, mixing, uh, no, interest with fantasy football is my game. And in this episode, we're going to explore the question of consistency in fantasy football and how it relates to ancient Roman generals. Why not? Buckle up. Capua sits a short distance north of its original city location in the modern world today. It's on the edge of the Campania region, and my Italian accent and pronunciation sucks. You should know that going in. Today visitors can see the remains of an amphitheater that's actually where Spartacus fought when he was a gladiator. They can also see the remains of the original city center in a smaller town nearby called Santa Maria Capua Verte. I'm not going to get that one right. V-E-T-E-R-E, however that's said. Its name means the city of the marches, the city of the marshes, which doesn't do much to invoke the often referenced beauty of the Italian countryside, but the area is, in truth, as you may imagine, Italy to look in films, movies, dreams, and tourist brochures. All of this, however, is a distant dream from where Publius Decius must stood on the left flank of a battlefield in 340 BC. There's almost no one alive today who has any comprehension of what an ancient bas- battlefield battlefield must have looked like. The numbers of dead and dying and fighting are rarely assembled in the modern world. And the deaths, actions, and sanitation of all three, it must be said, are remarkably different. Hectic? might be one word to describe what presented itself all around Decius as a cacophony of noise, sound, and final moments came together as flesh met metal, one giving way to the other, rather successfully. Glancing over, Decius could see the right flank, organized by his fellow consul, and no kidding, his name was actually Titus Manlius, and that flank was holding. It meant only one thing, as his flank was beginning to waver and then gradually, yet kind of all at once, collapse. It meant only one thing to Decius, anyway. You and I might consider the situation to have options, but not Decius. Not long from this moment in Roman history, Roman character and social structure or motivation are probably best described in the words of Dan Carlin as one centered around ambition, especially for its consuls. The political leaders are two heads of state at any one time. But this was the Latin War, a much earlier part of its of the Roman history than you might be more familiar with hearing about. It's long before Caesar turned his name into a title and a salad dressing, for example. Now, the Latin Wars was following closely on the heels of the Semnite War, in which Decius actually earned something called the Grass Crown, for leading a small group of 1,600 men against an overwhelming force to defend a mountain pass. Decius and his ilk may well have been more inclined to the Hellenization virtue, that great deeds and better deaths are the goal. And so Decius called the Pontifus Maximus over to instruct him on the rituals he had to perform to prepare himself. His was a flank to falter, the first one that began to falter. And as the oracle had already told them, one of the consuls must devote themselves to win this battle. 
The night before, between them, they'd struck a deal or a bargain, and he intended to follow through with that. Abraham Lincoln, in a far-off place, in a very different war, once said that the act of dying for your country in battle was the last form measure of devotion. It's a nice phrase. And I wonder if Lincoln knew about Decius, and I imagine he probably did. Devotion in battle was asking the gods, several in fact, to watch and accept the lives of your enemies and yourself in exchange for victory. Rites performed, Decius is said to have fought with such ferocity that it shook his enemy enough that they finally refused to engage him anymore. Instead, they took him down with darts from a distance, and still so afraid because of how strongly he fought. They avoided going near his body. This created a wide circle of ground around him, which his men, duly inspired, were able to take advantage of and overwhelm the enemy, eventually to victory. Devoting yourself in battle was a thing, and is a thing, and has been everywhere. On the small Micronosian island of Pompeii, Roman-sounding name to be fair, there's an oral tradition of a great warrior who, when invaded from the sea, stuck himself to the ground or the beach with his own spear through his foot, refusing to retreat even as they were overwhelmed. He would die not retreating but fighting. Again, the other Pompeians were inspired to victory by his sacrifice. Soldiers being soldiers is one thing. The fact that both Publius Decius Mus and his son Decius Mus, who was consul in 312 BC, and if the continued use of similar names and format of names sounds like a problem in the ancient world to you, it is, but you should really go count the Hasdrubals in Carthage before you judge Romans. His son, Decius Mus, again consul in 312 in the Third Semnite War, also devoted himself. This is something that makes me sit up based on my interest, or what I was studying in college at least, as my interest in history. Narratives and the type of narrative we find in cultures' traditions. Now in the Third Semnite War, the second Decius Mus devoted himself in battle, again on the left flank, after it began to falter and inspiring his men to victory. Like a lot of history, Livy and later Roman historians and authors are telling us stories of the past from their perspective. The Roman tradition again, what we call the, an ancient society's history of itself, isn't quite history, and it isn't quite myth by what we think of the, the names or the terms. Repeating stories isn't surprising. Ancestor worship and a belief in inherited traits are also common, and not just in the ancient world. But it does mean that this here and that there is a different kind of story, one that we would call something else, not history. Maybe myth, maybe legend, or a fairy tale, a fiction even sometimes. The Greeks define different types of narratives as logos or mythos, which is literally where we get the term myth. But even they meant something different by both of those terms, and it's kind of hard to create a standard definition through time. Anyway, it's something else. And FYI, if Decius and his son aren't enough for you. It's also worth noting that his grandson, also called Publius Decius Mus, obviously, but consul in 279 BC, he's less mentioned by surviving tradition, and there's both some remnants of a story of him devoting himself in battle and not devoting himself in battle. It's kind of, it's kind of uncertain. I'm unaware if he was fighting on the left flank, though. But three generations of the same family 
all dying in a similar way in Valor for Valor on the left flank maybe of a battle that had to be won in a way that is essential to the success of the Roman Empire that is being told to us by its future generations reaching back to uncover and claim and define its own story. It tells us as much about them or who they want us to think they were whoever we were to them and whoever they were telling the story to in their minds as anything else. Whatever these stories are, it's common for us to tell stories about ourselves to understand results, traditions, beliefs and acts, to justify our feelings and our ideas about the way things are or the way they should work that aren't quite history, that aren't quite fiction, that aren't quite fact either though. Consistency in fantasy football is such a story. Is it real? Is it true? Philosophers discuss truth, to be honest with you. I just want to know if it happens, how often, and does it matter, and what those answers, or how much of them we can glean, might mean. Decius Musk can be a hero. I'm personally a fan. But it doesn't mean I think that soldiers should carry spears into battle right now, even if they're on the left flank. Someone from my Patreon pointed out that the pacing of these episodes needs work, especially when I've got a lot of information flying through different segments. And I do have this segmented out with different chapters, but I don't have drops and I'm too unprofessional to create them. But this is one of them, so I guess I'm just going to talk for a little while to identify where you can, you know, stop doing something and maybe let that information settle in and refresh the coffee cup or, you know, make that left turn or change up the playlist or whatever you have to, have to do before I continue. Because the next section is called, Does Consistency Matter? And it's, yeah, it's a separate section. So here's this interlude. I'd hum, but you wouldn't like it. Some players are more consistent than others, the idea goes. Having a reasonable baseline of production week over week makes your team look solid and leaves you less likely to lose games and provides a solid foundation for it to score more points and win more ge games week over week. It makes sense, and it seems intuitive that a baseline of production is a good thing. While I've tried to do some work on consistency on the player level, the truth is it's a hard thing to prove or disprove. From what I can tell, what consistency there is, is consistently bad. As in low level of replaceable points. Players revolve around an average in general, but expecting a consistent week-over-week -week floor from a player is, by and large, futile. However... There is a simpler way to evaluate this. In his article for Football Guys called a peon, I think that's how you say that word, to uncommon sense, Adam Hornstead asks a different question looking for the same answer. How many points do you need to win on a week-by-week -week basis? Well, that's the general gist of the article anyway. I'll link it. You should definitely check it out. Instead of looking at complicated NFL stats and debating the coefficient of variation, he wonders if the assumption is accurate. Does a floor help? In the article, he goes through two of his leagues and looks at the average points difference between teams in each matchup. He found that the vast majority of games won by more than eight points. And only five games all season were won less by less than 10. Adding a whopping 25 points per game, so 25 points to any weekly score, a Jamal Charles points per game, that was his points per game that season, as an extra player to the losing team in those dynasty leagues only changed the outcome in in 40-50% to 50 of games. 
if adding a whole extra player with the best points per game in fantasy football at the time to the losing side only changes the outcome 50% or fewer of the time, how is it useful to gain a baseline of double-digit points from your wide receiver 1, 2, or even 3? I ran a similar test because he encourages you to do it in the article, so I thought, why not, on the DLF Podcast League. And looking at the winner of the league, Dynasty Island, congratulations, who won a 13-1 season, and a random bad team, me, last year, I found only three games in each of our seasons that were won by less than 10 points. The vast majority were won by more than 30. And a couple in between there, but still, Jamal Charles is necessary to really create the difference there. If even on bad teams, only three games between weeks 1 and 14 hang in the balance if you add a whole-ass player to your roster over the other team, scoring double-digit points, or in fact the best points per game of the recent season, which would still have left me out of the playoffs, by the way, then I suggest fighting over a baseline of consistent production every week is, as Adam suggested, meaningless. Players that decide weeks score a lot of points. Starting players with that in their range of outcomes is far more important than the bottom end of fantasy range on a week-by-week basis. But we can see this another way and ask the question, why was Justin Jefferson so good last year? Again, title card, uh, we're going on to a new section, that's that bit done. Uh, That's my whole thing about, read the article, we're done with does consistency matter, and I'm actually going to ask more in depth, or are players actually consistent? So, you know, let's, let's do that. In a regular start 11 dynasty league, or a super flex or not, if you're starting 11 players a week on each team, 12 team league, 132 players are started every week. So... If the floor matters, then finishing inside the top 132 every week would be important. And it is to an extent. But why was Justin Jefferson better than C.D. Lamb last year? Both played 15 games and both finished inside the top 132 93% of the games that they played. Jefferson finished inside the top 32 overall of all players that week in each week. 66% of the time. Cooper Cup was also producing top 32 games, by the way, at a 66% rate. That was down from an 88% rate the year before his amazing season, that difference-making season he had. The difference between Cooper Cup and Justin Jefferson last year was that Cup only played nine games. How about Mr. 1000 himself, Mike Evans? For his career, he finished inside the top 32 31% of the time. Sorry, top 36, 31% of the time just slightly below the average of a top 12 wide receiver in a single season. Now that's pretty good. However, in 2016, he played 15 games and produced top 32 weeks 40% of the time. You may remember that year as his top 12 breakout year, or the year his early ADP finally paid off. Talking about Mike Evans' value is very different from talking about how often he has been a difference-making fantasy player relative to his value. But by and large, looking at the number of games a player provided significant fantasy production in a significant number of weeks, better describes how good we feel about their season, how good it actually was. So let me offer you a counterintuitive from the intuitive assumption of consistency. 
Players who win you more weeks are better than ones that help you lose with a more respectable score. In 2022, both Mike Williams and Donovan Peoples-Jones finished inside the top 30 in total points, PPR scoring. Mike Williams finished inside the top 24 in points per game, it's worth noting, but Donovan Peoples-Jones finished outside the top 50 in points per game. But the real difference, in my opinion, is that while Donovan Peoples-Jones was startable in 73% of his games in that he finished inside the top 132 on a week-by-week basis 73% of the time when he was start when he played, Mike Williams was only startable in 63% of his games. But Williams also finished inside the top 32 36% of the time. So that's four weeks of top 32 production. Whereas Donovan Peoples-Jones only had a a top 32 rate of 6%. He finished inside the top 32 overall in a single game. Deontay Johnson has been in the top 132 93% of the games he's played in the NFL in 2022. And 100% of the games in 2020. Why? Because he earns all the targets. But his good season was one in which he finished in the top 32 28% of the time. That was 2021. I'd like to tell you the soul, something that we can rank by the top, the number of top 32 weeks or something, which I've tallied, but while better ranked players are more likely to have better percentages in general, the fact is expecting a baseline of production in the top 32 doesn't work any better than anything else. But I do think it's more accurately, more accurate or more accurately describes how good or bad a fantasy season was. And that's because consistency doesn't matter. Upside does on a week-to-week basis. If you start both all season long, Mike Williams helped you. Donovan Peoples-Jones did not. For reference, finishing inside the top 132, regardless of position, is about 8 points. Finishing inside the top 32 overall in a single week, on average, is about 17 points. PPR scoring any position. Title card. Positions that are consistently useful. Let's consider that for a minute. These interludes are getting getting old, to be honest. Um, But let's test some known truths through this lens. Since 2010, just to give you an idea, players finishing in the top 12 in to- top 12 at each position. QBs in the top 12 average about 48% of their games inside the top 32. Running backs average about 38% of their games inside the top 32. Wide receivers average 40% in the top 12. And tight ends average about 14% of their games inside the top 32 overall scoring in an individual season. That means that quarterbacks are more startable overall, overall the positions in a single week. And significantly, 48% versus the next nearest, which is 40%. That's a significant difference. Or to count it in real terms, there are seven likely games of a random average top 12 quarterback where they finish inside the top 32. Whereas at running back and wide receiver, it's basically six games if you want to put it in terms of a real count. And that's just the average, not the very top of the production chart there with one, two, and players ranked one, two, and three. Tight ends, that 14% basically works out to two games. So, bitch, please, they're not startable relative to the other positions as a flex option. Since 2010, players rank 13 to 24 at each position. Quarterback, 25% of their games, they finish inside the top 32. Running back, it's 17%. Wide receivers, it's 24% tight ends it's five percent so in other words uh, uh, 
a top 24 quarterback has four games inside the top 32. Running backs have three games. Wide receivers also have four games inside the top 32 overall. Like 24% of their games are finishing inside the top 32, which equals four games in a season. And tight ends. So let me put this into some perspective for you. So let's consider some things that you know are true that should be borne out through this lens, right? What about late round QB? The top five are notably different at every position, but quarterback is more consistent and more gradual fall off through the ranks. So you're seeing less advantage by starting the quarterback 15 versus the quarterback 7 in terms of the number of games they on average produce in a single season. That is true, and it's shown in this data. Running back positional advantage. The drop-off at wide receiver is decidedly less drastic through the first 12 than at running back. And that's where that truth is shown. The top 32 count of the percentage of weeks backs up what we know to be true through other studies and previous experience. How about the Kelsey rule, formerly known as the Rob Gronkowski rule, obviously. The tight end one, despite those numbers I just quoted, like 14% of games of the top 12, the tight end one averages 48% of games inside the top 32 which is distinctly different from the rest of the position. We know the tight end one and sometimes the tight end two can be very different from the typical average of the position in general. So that's that's borne out too. How about top four, 24 running backs being useless? Now that's not a known truth. That's a truth that I think you should consider known, but anyway. The running back 23 averages fewer weeks inside the top 32 than the wide receiver 19. Like, it's, it, it's markedly different. Top 24 running backs, running backs that finish the season between ranks 13 and 24, are just less startable than wide receivers finishing inside the top 24, or really inside the top 36. While there is a marginal difference year over year in general, these averages are actually consistent in each season. 22, there are some variants, there is some variance. 2022 was a bad year for top 12 running backs, for example. 32% of their games were inside the top 32 overall versus the 38% average that we looked at. But in 2018, they had a really good year with 58% of the average top 12 running backs being inside the top 32. So there is some variance. It's also notable that wide receivers see less severe drops or dips or increases year over year. Wide receivers averaging 36% of their games inside the top 32 for top 12 players by the end of the season. In 2019 and 2016, we did see slight increases where 40% of their games were finishing inside the top 32, but that's a lot less drastic than the 38 to 58% difference for the running back position in 2018. In 2006, and before running backs at, at before 2006, Running backs inside the top 12 average 53% of their games inside the top 32. A very different era of production than what we know is the current NFL landscape. So I think it's interesting that these are reasonable expectations by positional rank. It's hard to say they're more or less consistent, although players who do well are more likely to continue to do well. Cooper Cup is more likely to produce a 66% season, like above the average of the wide receiver one, in a single season, but that 88% or that 86% he had in 2021 was something that was very hard to repeat and he didn't manage it even through his nine games. But the positional averages 
remarkably stable. So where's the lie is my next question, next title segment, or a better way of saying it, because I think that goes to the heart of some of this, some of the stuff we're talking about here, especially the arguments I'm having with John Hogue on a regular basis at this point, is is quarterback the best superflex option for that superflex spot? As always, there's a perspective we can take that shows the limitations of such confident sounding numbers. As always, it's by challenging the fallacy of the average. Going week over week, I obviously have calculated the points per game rank of each player every year, every week, since 2010. I actually did it since 2000, but again, I don't want to get irrid out of this, so since 2010. On average, by week four, 65% of the quarterbacks ranking inside the top 12 finish inside the top 12 by the end of the season. On average, by week four, 55% of running backs ranking inside the top 12 finish the season inside the top 12. And at wide receiver, 53%. Pretty much exactly the same as running back. So we can know about half the group by week four, leaving us to believe that we can start players with confidence even only four weeks into the season. And it is notable that quarterbacks are significantly more likely to continue to produce at a certain rate. Again, 65% versus 50%, that's a significant advantage at the quarterback position, finishing inside the top 12 if they're there by week three. However, it is worth noting that that's only half the group at running back and wide receiver. In 2022, Marcus Brown, Mike Evans, Mike Thomas, Michael Thomas, Christian Kirk, and Jalen Waddle, the man himself, were all inside the top 12 in points per game, but only Waddle finished inside the top 13 by the end of the season in points per game. I write a series on how much we know by this week, and I know, catchy title, uh, about end of season positional rankings for DLF. I also post a lot of that stuff on Patreon. It's honestly really tedious to put together, but I also think, as with most things I actually try to put the effort into write-up consistently, it's a disrespected edge. How much we know by week X is a potential glance into the future, sure in value trends, but it could also help us to see how startable players are relative to flex decisions, without just defaulting to DFS broism. And I think that's important, when you consider the value differences between those top 24 quarterbacks and a lot of the top 24 wide receivers that are consistently drafted or traded for lesser values. You can get the same startable weeks from two wide receivers and start them and you're getting more top 32 weeks versus that one top 24, getting double the startable weeks versus that top 24 quarterback that we plug in automatically. But let's not overstate the effect of any of this. The fact is that there is a lot of variance in this data and plenty of early producers are going to fall off by the season end. Rookies are especially prone to this variance, remember, and let's not forget that injured or older players are in the mix here and they could be throwing off our numbers slightly. I dug in as deep as I can, but I haven't memorized every line. DeAndre Hopkins didn't play till week seven, for example, in 2022, but he did immediately rank inside the top 12 in points per game the first week he played and finished the season inside the top 12. So does that change the numbers? How about other such examples? It's difficult to know. Well, it's not difficult to know. It's just remarkably tedious. I think we can trust these numbers, but I would encourage you to look at them as well. There is noise and lies in data, or at least our conclusions can be untrue, um, because interpretation plays a part. 
Still, I think it's notable that by week four, no bad start in 2022 was ranking inside the top 12, at least. And the top 24, honestly, is about as decent. To that point, I bucketed a lot of them. Players that finish inside the top 12 by week four, finish inside the top 24 at the end of the season in points per game, 87% of the time at quarterback. 79% running back, 76% of the time at wide receiver, and 87% of the time at tight end. So if they're a good or a bad start by week four, it's as known at running back and wide receiver as quarterback, especially with those top 12 players. Essentially, ranking inside the top 12 by week four is almost a guarantee that they finish inside the top 24 by the end of the season. And yes, everything I just said in this section here was all points per game to remove the variance of those who lost time to injury, basically. See, I don't hate points per game. I just respect the fact that some stats are better for some things and none of them are magic do-it-all numbers. Next, and kind of the final section, what actionable takeaways can we take away from any of this that I just spouted at you? The first, a reasonable question to ask when making a flex decision is, where will this player finish by the end of the season? even in points per game. We know way more than we think we do by week four. Wide receivers are better super flex starts than most quarterbacks, I think. But I must admit that I can understand how quarterbacks are going to be easier decisions with those flex spots because of the reality of that prediction. It's easier to guess that Marcus Mariota is going to finish top 24 overall in points per game at least by week four because there are only 32 quarterbacks to consider. Whereas Zay Jones or Christian Kirk by week four, to be honest, are harder things to believe in, at least finishing inside certain positional ranks. I get it. And that does weigh into a weekly starting game. But I do think we can do better at flexing two wide receivers for left. Flaws don't matter as a decision maker in fantasy football. That's one of my main takeaways from any of this research. Consistency is probably a myth. Um, But where it exists, it's likely either happenstance or consistency in points that don't mean much for your fantasy team. I do think that the best way to rank players, performance in fantasy at least, is a season season weighted by overall points, points per game, and the percentage of weeks players finish inside the top 32 overall. None of them work as well in isolation. However, I do want to also say that before we spend hours crunching numbers on that kind of a spreadsheet... I don't think there's any potential better ranking that's going to provide more meaningful edge moving forward. And most of the common errors will be eliminating players you kind of know about just by looking at the list because of injuries or missed time or random efficiency. It's going to be dispelling errors that we probably wouldn't make just with common sense looking at a list of overall points or points per game as long as you're willing to look over an eight game threshold. So let's wrap this all up. I remember seeing a lot posted by a fantasy person, let's call them, uh, betting that Cooper Cup couldn't replicate his 2021 season in 2022. It's a jerry-rigged proposition bet for Twitter clicks, to be honest. It's easy to see through if you don't get swept up in the overtop persona or punchable delivery. Betting any player doesn't finish at a specific fantasy rank is a plus EV proposition. You're betting that someone can't hit a quarter with a water balloon 50 miles away next week. 
Much ado is made about running back ones not repeating year over year, for example, even though the top five and top 12 repeat rate are actually fairly similar to wide receivers, although wide receivers do get a slight edge. Heck, even John Hogue is out here arguing that Jefferson can't be Jefferson again this year. Since 2010, only two wide receiver ones have produced over 66% of gains inside the top 32, and one of them was a Cooper Cup in 2021. Players who do better are more likely to do better, or well, in the next game, the next week, and as a rule, in anything else. Most of the other stuff is navel-gazing nonsense or trying to win jerry-rigged bets, essentially. Outside of predicting injuries, which some feel they can do through science and medicine and spreadsheets, I don't have much time for this kind of idea. And if I'm going to lose, I really don't care if I have a better score while I'm doing it. The value is in having a clearer understanding of how players produce in a season. Descriptive data is useful, as is regressive and predictive, but creating reasonable expectations is king in my opinion. Players have better and worse seasons, outlier production, and borderline insane repeat rates on occasion. But by and large, you should try to establish a best guess of their overall season as early as possible from last, what they did last year to what they're doing during the current season, and then expect players will be as startable based on their position, based on the position that they play. Regardless of position, remember, players who finish inside the top 32 or 96 or 132 overall score the same number of points in an individual week, or a reasonable approximation of each other, anyway. There's a little reason to get lost in the weeds chasing phantom consistency or outlier seasons, Personally, I think what I'm going to try and do is keep pushing the amount we know by each week forward. And reality will keep continue to play me for a fool by saying Christian Kirk is top 12 by week 4. Or that Romeo Dugs looks good for the top 24 by week 8. Actually, it was week 6. And then Christian Watson had. If you're looking to jumpstart any of this research for yourself, as far as I can tell, it matters more how many times players produce inside certain positional ranks week over week rather than the overall rank to that point in the season because ceilings matter more i'm tracking it though every week for dlf and patreon so you don't even have to count a thing um if you have any questions about it or you want to see that data if you if you don't mind seeing a enormous uh spreadsheet let me know for now, I'd just like to thank you for listening to this podcast again. I really appreciate you taking the time to try out me doing something a little different than most of the landscape. Um, even though this is just fantasy football and this is just a very small podcast, I've been trying really hard to do more with it because that's what I want to listen to, to be honest. Um, I'd also like to mention, shout out, or just uh, thank the occasional review, DM, and the out-of-the-blue Discord messages that I get, or the live stream comments that occasionally roll across uh, the chat box. They mention that they've listened or enjoyed or offer feedback on what they enjoyed and what they didn't, and honestly, it's kind of a lifeline for me. Feedback is relatively rare, if you can believe it, in this game, and... Um, and it's hard to keep going if you just always imagine yourself screaming into the void to no purpose. Hearing for you honestly means the world to me, and I really want to thank you for that. If you're interested in my ranks, articles, any of my data or tables, they can be found on Patreon, or you can follow my Linktree link, which is this Linktree PA Howdy, to see all of my links, my bio, or anything else you want to see. I've also made a Threads account, because apparently Twitter is burning again, so I guess we'll see how that works out. I'm... P.A. Howdy everywhere, so I'm 
hopefully pretty easy to find. But in that's it for now. And thanks again. And I'll catch you on the next one. Yeah. Chicken or crow, chicken or crow, crossing the road, go. Clicking a poll, Twitter is gold, player unfold, so. Jake on the table and Nate on the place, so. Pete enumerates the plays, they're analytical. Picking my nose, don't really know if I like that. Picking their brains, got different lanes, but I like that. Picking these guys, all of these times, all of these nice stats. Picking apart, the film is an art, always a fight back and forth. There is no order, they disorder more and more because the players ain't no older. They some hoarders or some mortars, dropping bombs without no borders. They got that I like mortar, peak grinding numbers like molars. I don't know anymore, I am at a crossroads. Chicken or crow, chicken or crow, crossing the road, go. Clicking a poll, Twitter is gold, player unfold, so. Jake on the table and they on the play, so. Pete enumerates the plays, they're analytical. Chicken or crow, chicken or crow, crossing the road, go. Clicking a poll, Twitter is gold, player unfold, so. Jake on the table and they on the play, so. Pete enumerates the plays, they're analytical.